If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to be on the passage. We'll do a little bit of exploring today as we kind of always do. But uh, yeah, is, is Kurt doing the announcements next week? Because we're only doing four verses today. So we're going to do like two chapters next week. If <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, you know, for Kurt, it's always something special. No, I, I love Kurt. Um, one of the questions uh, that we're going to be exploring today is, is really just a summary. It brings us to a summary of what Christian living is all about. And, and the way that I think we, we get to what that is, is by asking the same question that philosophers have been asking since the dawn of humanity. And that is, what uh, what is the meaning of life? And, you know, this is a question that goes back uh, thousands and thousands of years, and there are just so many different answers. In fact, each person on the face of the earth uh, might have a different answer to that question. There are just so many uh, different answers. One could spend their lifetime just exploring how other people have answered that question. So, in other words, the purpose of somebody's life is to figure out what everybody else has said about the purpose of life. Or, you know, you could just Google it, and you could could go to like infinity, uh, getting the answers that people have given from there. Uh, you could spend a lifetime on a task like that. So I want to start by looking at how some, uh, some of our culture's uh, famous writers and famous philosophers have, uh, have responded to this question, what is the meaning of life? Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, famous novelist, gr- great novelist, in fact, he says that the meaning of life is, quote, to be what we are and to become what we are capable of becoming is the only end of life. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I'm capable of becoming quite evil, to be quite honest. I, 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 there, there's something in me that propels me toward evil. So if he's right, boy, why, why don't we have more murder going on? Why don't we have more evil going on? There is an, a bunch of evil out there, but it's not as bad as it could be, right? Henry Miller said this. He says, life has to be given a meaning because of the obvious fact that it has no meaning. Okay. Douglas Adams. Sam, what did Douglas Adams say the meaning of life is? 42. That's correct. (laughs) Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. He writes this. He says, the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. Just like Sam said, I knew he was going to know that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Michael Crichton, another famous novelist, he says this. He says, the purpose of life is to stay alive. Watch any animal in nature. All it tries to do is stay alive. It doesn't care about beliefs or philosophy. Of course, he's espouting a philosophy there, which is very interesting. He's thinking that somebody's going to care about what he writes. And indeed, you know, we we do. His readers do uh, care about what he writes. But if the purpose is just to stay alive, then what about when we die? Because we all die. Is it meaningless? Is it completely meaningless? It's a good question. Brent Weeks, from, uh, the author of the Night Angel Trilogy, said this. He says, quote, life is meaningless. When we take a life, we take nothing of value, end quote. Man, that's a, that's a scary philosophy right there. But the truth is that for a lot of modern writers, philosophers, screenwriters even, life has no ultimate meaning. Steve Martin. Everybody heard of Steve Martin? Uh, he's been in tons of funny movies, and, he, and he's hilarious. Uh, he's now a famous comedian, but did you know he actually started out as a philosophy major? 
Ooh, that's a, that's a dangerous road to go down. Let me just warn you ahead of time. He was a student of philosophy at California State University in Long Beach. And he once, uh, you know, once he started taking philosophy, he got into a logic class and he started exploring this question. And he too arrived at the conclusion that life is absolutely meaningless. And so his philosophy was just, we should just laugh as much as we possibly can and enjoy it while we can because it's short. So the meaning of life, there is nothing. Just laugh because we're all going to die. Wow, uh, that's a scary philosophy. Uh, I, I would take issue with what he said. Uh, I don't know how many classes he took in philosophy uh, or, or which philosophers he studied, but this idea that everything is, is meaningless uh, is crazy. He said this. He said, in philosophy, I started studying logic, and they were talking about cause and effect. And you start to realize, hey, there is no cause and effect. There is no logic. There is no anything, end quote. Now, just as a side note, if there was no logic, we wouldn't even be able to understand what he's saying. It takes logic to, to deduce meaning from a sentence. So, so the fact that, that we can understand what he's saying and that he's trying to communicate something meaningful contradicts his own statement. So again, I don't know, you know which philosophers he studied, but the idea that everything is meaningless and that there is no logic uh, is a conclusion that only the modern philosophers have arrived at. It's only, in fact, in the past 200 years, less than that maybe, 170, 160 years. In fact, the idea that life is meaningless really started to take hold, really started to take off around the same time that the idea of evolution started taking root. The idea of evolution started being tossed around and accepted more and more. Hmm, how ironic. Coincidence? Probably not. Yeah, I agree with Sam. So with that fact in mind, we do well remember that there was something that Solomon repeatedly affirmed in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, all is vanity. And he says it a bunch of times. Everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that is uh, one of the main themes of the book, that everything is vanity. And that is, he affirms it until he reaches the, the last couple verses of the book, where he affirms that the only things that have any meaning whatsoever are things that are done out of obedience and fear of God. Indeed, apart from God, life has no meaning or purpose. And life is incredibly short. So let's take a quick look at some of the things, aside from God, that people make their lives about. People, everybody wants to make their life about something. Steve Martin wants to, make, wants to add meaning to his life by making people laugh. And he's done a good job of that. But uh, let's take a look at some of the things that people make their lives about to give purpose to themselves. You know, a person can, can uh, make their, their life about their job, about their career. But that's really just an illusion. It's, it's sinking sand at best because, first of all, a person can lose their job in a heartbeat. Uh, where or, or what a person's identity is based on uh, would, would be lost when they become jobless if, our jo- if our job determined uh, meaning in our life. Life would become meaningless when bad economy hits. Uh, but secondly, th- this idea that uh, you know just really sets a person up for a miserable life because no matter how good you are at your job, you can always be better. Even, even the best people, you know, the people who are best at what they do, they could do better. I mean, Michael Jordan was was the greatest player of all time. Could he have made one more basket? 
Sure. Sure, why not? Bill Gates, you know, he's done all this stuff. Could he do one more thing? Absolutely. So, so even the people who are the best at their profession could do better. And so even if you find meaning in, in, in your job, a person has to realize that life didn't have as much meaning as it could have if their job determines meaning in their life. A person can feel like their material possessions give their lives meaning. But again, that's, that's an illusion. It's, it's sinking sand because that stuff can be, can be gone in a heartbeat. You can have the biggest house on the block, in, in the world for that matter. You, you can have the tallest building in the world and two airplanes come and it's gone. So, so the idea that, that, that the things that we hold on to give our lives meaning or purpose is silly. We, we can't take those things to the grave and they can be gone. A person can feel like life is about being entertained, but if you've ever tried to make your life about being entertained, you know it's never enough. It's never enough. You you eventually get bored with being entertained, and you move on to something else, and you get bored with that, and you move on to something else, and you get bored with that. And it's like this endless cycle of finding emptiness in entertainment. A person can feel like fame gives their life meaning, but again, that can be here today and and gone tomorrow. And and besides, you know, fame is, is really... A fragile thing because it's never stagnant. Fame doesn't stay the same. You know, there's there's always this give and take where you know there's one more person who, who's liking you or, or disliking you, and so it, it's always wavering. And so there's going to reach a point in which it, your your fame, your popularity, the, the degree to which people like you starts to decline. And then what? Life has less meaning. And don't live for beauty either, by the way, because. Age and gravity get the best of all of us. Every single one of us falls victim to, uh, to age and gravity. Uh, hopefully you get the point. You know, the things of this world don't make our lives meaningful. They don't give our lives real purpose, not, not in the least bit. And every single one of us is living for something. Everybody on the face of the planet is living for something. Even the philosophers and the writers who assert that life is meaningless, they spend their lives trying to fill the void, trying to fill their lives with some sort of purpose or meaning. And there are no exceptions. Every person on the face of the earth looks to give their life meaning in one way or another. And that's revealed in what they devote their lives to. That's really what it boils down to. What do they devote their lives to? The real question is whether or not the things that we live for are worth dying for. Whether the things that we live for are worth dying for. Because if the things that we find meaning in aren't worth dying for, how can they be worth living for? What's Paul's answer to this question? He says this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, one of the more well-known verses of the Bible. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is a succinct, wonderful statement that summarizes what Christianity, what the whole Christian life is all about. While others would say, you know, to, to live is work, or to live is to be entertained, or to live is, is finding fame, or being beautiful, or to live is, you know, fill in the blank. These answers are all lacking because they don't bring gain in death. Rather, they bring tremendous loss in death. In fact, I would be so bold to say that any answer other than what Paul has declared here is the same as saying that life is meaningless. Paul's life 
I, I love studying Paul's life because he was, he was so transformed by the gospel from the inside out. I mean, this was a guy who hated Christians. And he gets transformed into this guy who just, he's, he's such a loving guy when it comes to other believers. Through him and, and through anyone, uh, anyone whose life is or, or was dedicated to the glory of God and, and spreading the gospel, we see that the gospel just does so much more than just uh, change our standing before God. Everybody wants their, their position before God to be changed. And, and praise the Lord, we've got that. Our, our, our position before God has been changed. But, but with Paul, we see so much more. It's not just, you know, there's, there's not an unbelieving person on the face of the earth who doesn't want a right standing before God. You know, the, the, even the unbelievers, they're just hoping for the best when, when life is over. For the atheist, the hope is literally for their existence to just stop, to, to just evaporate into, into nothingness rather than, rather than being confronted with the reality that they have, have willfully and deliberately and intentionally refused to believe in the one who could save them from the wrath of God against their sin. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. But in their unrighteousness, they have intentionally suppressed the very truth that could save them. That's from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. The gospel changes everything. It changes our standing before God, Right? Through an act of regeneration, we're we're a new creation. It simultaneously uh, changes our standing before God when we're regenerated. But but when it but but then after that, when when we get past the regeneration part and we are this new creation, it keeps changing us. Not just our standing before God, but it changes our attitudes and it changes our values. Why else? Why else would Paul write his most joy-filled letter? while he's in prison, while he's chained to a member of the Roman Imperial Guard. The gospel also gives meaning to our lives. It changes the meaningfulness in our lives. While we were once enemies of God who lived for nothing and nobody but ourselves by faith in Christ and repentance, we were adopted as orphans into God's family, which freed us to do things, to live for things which have significance, which have meaning and purpose. In other words, to live for things that are significant in an eternal spectrum. And so the atheists, the, 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 the godless writers and philosophers are correct in, the, in their statements about what they have found as the answer to this question. Life has no meaning for them, ultimately. But they haven't exactly turned over every stone, have they? Because it's there, they've just not looked for it. They've they've intentionally avoided turning over the one stone that has the answer, which is exactly what the Scriptures affirm that they have done. And if they've done that, how can they they claim to be so wise that they can give advice? Romans 1.22 gives us the answer. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So what does it mean to live for Jesus? What does it mean to be so transformed by the gospel that everything is so changed you're now living for Jesus and eternal uh, things that are eternally significant rather than things that are, are basically meaningless? I think Jesus answered this question very succinctly in one very, very short parable. In fact, it's only one sentence in length. He says in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven 
is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then in his joy he surrenders everything so that he can have this treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. What's, what's the kingdom of heaven? This is a, a, a pop quiz. What is the kingdom of heaven? One word. One name. Jesus. Jesus. I'm going to keep pounding that in so that every time you read the kingdom of heaven, you're thinking uh, Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is like this hidden treasure in a field. And what does it cost this hypothetical person who represents me, represents you, represents anybody else? Uh, what does it cost this hypothetical person to buy the field? Absolutely everything. Everything that they have. Everything they've ever dreamed of. Do you get the impression that there was anything in this hypothetical person's life, anything that he possessed, anything uh, he wanted to possess, anything that he valued? Was there anything that he wasn't willing to completely abandon for the sake of having the treasure in this field? Was there anything? No, because he joyfully, joyfully trades everything that he has for what's in this field. Jesus tells us he was joyful to give up everything for the sake of owning and having this field. So the question that we're forced to ask ourselves here is, what do I desire to have more than Jesus? What do I desire to have more than Jesus? What am I holding on to that I would not joyfully give up for the sake of knowing and being known by Jesus? Because friends, if there's anything in the world that you can think of, even your own life, even, even your family, if there's anything that you can think of that you wouldn't let go of or, or at least give a, a lower priority to than Jesus, then you have to wonder if, if you have the same assurance of this man who bought the field. So whatever it is that you're living for, this, this is a picture of really uh, what it is in comparison to the, to the incredible joy and blessing of gaining Christ. Everything is worth losing because this is the only thing worth gaining. What this comparison really boils down to is a choice to either live for Christ or to live for, for rubbish, as Paul says uh, later on in the book. As Matt Chandler puts it, he says this, quote, when everything considered valuable in life is seen to be nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ, you learn rather well that Christ alone is worth living for. Friend, the question is not whether or not you believe in God. The question is not even whether you want to go to heaven when you die. Everybody wants to go to heaven when they die. The real question is, what would you not completely surrender to Jesus in order to have him? And so I'm personally begging all of you, to be completely honest about this question, and I would ask that if there's anything that you would refuse to release in order to have Jesus, your own life, whatever, please, please surrender it. Reprioritize it. Please arrange your priorities and values because the child of God who has disorganized priorities and puts something else before God, uh, before Jesus, is eventually going to be disciplined. The Bible tells us very clearly that God will discipline every child that he adopts into his family. And trust me, I, I've, I've been there. Uh, I've done that. I, I insisted on learning the hard way. 
The hard way is hard, by the way. Uh, it's not a lot of fun, but I insisted on it. And, you know, if you love something more than Jesus, but you don't get disciplined, I think we all know the implications of that. And so with fear and trembling, please, please see that the treasure of gaining Christ, of gaining Jesus, is worth more than anything else. It's worth more than anything else. And you can't gain him if you value something else and you refuse to release something else before him. Please understand and know how important this is. But rest assured that the blessing of redemption, the the blessing of being adopted into his family, the blessing of, of being redeemed, saved from death, and known by Jesus, more than compensates the true believer for anything and everything that they have been willing to sacrifice for the sake of following, knowing, and glorifying him. So the question, what is the meaning of life? This is interesting. It's actually the the first question that the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which was written back in 1647, that's the first question that it seeks to, uh, to answer. So even back then, they, they were asking, what is the meaning of life? And this is, uh, this is the question that they pose right off the bat. It says, quote, what is the chief end of man? And of course, chief end is just a, a 1947 way of saying, uh, you know, uh, meaning or, or purpose. What, what, is, what is the primary thing in a person's life that gives them meaning or purpose? Uh, that's just the language they used in, in 1647. But the answer is this, man's chief end, man's purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so if you want to find true, lasting purpose in life, you must learn to live in and for Christ Jesus. Paul Washer says this, he says, We may boast of inward passion and feelings of piety toward God, but our boast is valid only to the degree that our life conforms to His will. This is the whole experience of Christian living. It's so simple, yet it's so difficult. Four words. It's just four words. To live is Christ. Four words. And Paul gives us a wonderful summary of it. He expounds on it and gives us a wonderful summary of what it means to live for Christ in the next verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 22. He says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. As if he's in control, right? He knows he's not, but this is saying, okay, if I had to choose, which would I prefer? Hmm, which I choose, I cannot tell. Now, how many people can truly say that? He's saying that if he had to choose to live or die, he's not sure whether he'd prefer to live or, or, or die. He's saying that he sees his imprisonment, he sees his impending trial before uh, Nero, and he sees the possibility of being put to death or being released as a win-win proposition. E- either way, win-win. The only thing that could make an attitude like Paul's possible was to have Jesus as the top priority. To have Jesus as the source, the center, the power, and the purpose in life. And every single one of us who's in Christ Jesus can find freedom to live above and beyond the ordinary and and just the common life by being transformed and empowered by Jesus 
in the same way. Now notice that this isn't just uh, you know some kind of internal faith, you know, that he, he's got a, a, a devoted life of devotion where, you know, he just, in the morning he gets up for 15 minutes and, and does his, his devotion. I mean, that, that's great. I'm not knocking that, but he, it's got to be more than that. that. That's not what Christian living is about. Christian living is about the whole life, all of life, coming under one submission, submission uh, attitude of submission to Jesus. I'm certain that he does have an inward devotion, a private walk with Jesus, but what happens is it overflows like a fountain that's just overflowing in his life out into his actions. And that's why he refers to this as, as, as uh, living in the flesh. His fruitful labor is plentiful, but it's uh, that, that, that labor that, uh, that he's doing, the stuff that he's doing for Jesus is an outward reflection of something that is an internal reality for Paul. That reality being that he was passionate passionate about living every minute for the glory and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Following Jesus. Jesus told us what what it entails. It's about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and walking the same path that Jesus walked. That's from Mark chapter 8, verse 34. I'll never forget that because uh, I preached a whole sermon just on that verse. And it, it was one of those things that like, wow, this is like serious stuff. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, walking the same path that Jesus walked. When our purpose is found in in living for Christ, when He alone is the answer to our questions about the meaning of life, one of the things that will inevitably happen is that we will follow in Christ's path. We learn to love the things that He loves. We learn to to do the the things that He did, to, to serve humbly the way that He served humbly, selflessly. We learn to accept hardships, suffering, and rejection, and trials with joy. Jesus said this, John chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And we would be foolish to think that Jesus was persecuted by the world. He was hated by the world, but we won't be because a servant isn't greater than his master. The way of the master is the way that the servant follows. And yet so many self-professing Christians do absolutely everything that they can to avoid absolutely any sense of persecution, any form of persecution. Many of the people who fill the churches in this country keep their faith as private as they possibly can because they fear the consequences of being disliked. They fear the consequences of, of, of people looking down on them and hating them. They don't want to be mocked. And so they keep it as quiet as they possibly can. And we need to understand how unbelievably silly this seems in comparison to men and women in places around the world where violent persecution of Christians is commonplace. And it is all, it's all over other parts of the world. Try going to North Korea and saying, I love Jesus Christ. You are signing a death sentence if you say that there. Try doing it in, in, a, in a, like Iran. Try doing it there. Try doing it in downtown, uh, you know, Cairo, in Egypt. 
It's commonplace. And, you know, while we're crying persecution every time somebody mocks us or, or stands up against us for, you know, outwardly expressing our faith, there's, there's a proverbial man in Indonesia who watches as his family members are shot one by one through the head, one by one, as each one of them refuses to deny Jesus Christ. And when the persecutors finally come to this hypothetical man, insisting that he denies Christ, he cries out, kill me if you must, but there is nothing that you can offer me in comparison to the glory of loving Christ, to the glory of knowing Christ. There is nothing that's worth denying Christ for. And if you don't think that this is a reality in various places around the world, you live in a very sheltered reality. I'll just say that. Persecution will come in one way or another. You cannot follow Jesus without being hated or persecuted in one way or another, whether that means you know, being threatened with, with death or uh, you know, mocked by your peers. Our attitude when it comes to persecution should be to rejoice rather than to retreat in the face of persecution. Because persecution is really a, a, just the badge of faithfulness. It's the badge of faithful witness of Christ. That's why Peter said, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. See, for the person who, who lives for Jesus, who finds their, their purpose in life in Christ, there is gain in life. That is, there will be fruitful labor for Jesus John 15, abide in me and I in you and you will, you'll produce a lot of fruit. And it'll add prolonged meaning and purpose to a person's life. And then there is gain in death. What is the gain in death? Paul says this in the next verse, Philippians 1.23. He says, I am hard pressed between the two. That is between life and death. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. He's hard-pressed between knowing whether it would be better to, to live or die. If he lives, he'll continue to, to produce uh, fruit from his labor for, for the glory of Christ. That's a good thing. But if he dies, he'll be with Christ. He'll be in the presence of Christ, which is also a good thing. In fact, he says that to depart, to be with Christ is a far better thing. But do you feel the sense of assurance and security that he has here in, in his words? See, Paul was a man who, who knew exactly, exactly where he stood with God. And he eagerly anticipated the day when he would hear the Lord Jesus say to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now let's think about this. The last words that Paul heard from, from Jesus were on the road to Damascus. When Jesus said, Why are you persecuting me? That was the last thing that he had heard from Jesus. And I can only imagine that Paul just couldn't wait to hear these words of approval from Jesus when he entered into eternity. And so he didn't fear death. And because he was willing to die for his faith, he was free to live for his faith. Do you get that? Does that make sense? He, he's, he's not afraid of death and so he's, you know, because of his faith and so he's, a, he's free to, to live out his faith. So you can't live out your faith if you're afraid to die because of it or if you're afraid to be persecuted in any way because of it. 
And because he was willing to die for his faith, he could, he could live for it. When a person's so afraid of death that they're afraid to, to live out their faith to the fullest, really the, the truth is that they've come uh, to be a slave to their own mortality. That's really what it boils down to. And so the question is, what is your greatest hope? We see that Paul's greatest hope is, is Jesus. What's, what's yours? Is it something in this life? Because if it's something in this life, then to die is tremendous loss. Because the things of this world aren't coming with us when they die. For Paul, his greatest hope was not only to be like Christ, but also to be with Christ in his presence. And so to die was gain, not because it meant the end of his earthly suffering. He's not suicidal here or anything like that. Uh, but But because to die meant that he could dwell directly in the presence of Jesus, free to experience eternal fellowship with him. But there's another way that death can be gained. If our goal is to glorify Christ in all that we do, dying can actually be a very, very powerful witness for Christ. If Paul died in a way that glorified Christ, then there was an additional gain in dying. Not only would he be with Christ, but Christ would be glorified because of his death. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And indeed, if you look back through history, you'll find that when Christians are being persecuted, when Christians are being martyred, the church does not just die out. Instead, it it spawns great periods of revival because it separates the wheat from the chaff. And Paul is willing to be a martyr. He's willing to give his life for Jesus. He's willing to surrender it all for Jesus because he's confident that it will bring glory to Jesus in some way. And he'll get to be with Jesus. It is beautiful and wonderful to know, by the way, that this, this passage has been used and memorized and repeated and written down by martyrs throughout history who see Paul's willingness to die for the sake of Christ. And it encouraged people who were about to be martyred to stand faithful to the end. Have you ever said to yourself, Lord, just, this is too much, just take me home now. I I just, I can't wait to be in heaven because this is all just too much. And I know that it's all just going to be over when I get to heaven. It's at least easy for us to leave that impression with people as if we're just living for the, for the icing on the cake, which I, I guess is the, what heaven would be in that uh, metaphor. But see, the reason that Paul is torn between these two options of life and death is because he's committed to the mission of God on earth, which is to seek and save the lost. That's from Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And while we probably all agree with Paul that it would be better to be with Jesus, you know, I, I don't, uh, don't debate that at all. It would definitely be better. Nothing would be better than to be with, uh, with Jesus. Can you honestly say that you would be torn between living and dying? That is to say, if you had any type of say in the matter, would, would you be torn like Paul is torn here? because you're so committed to what God has called you and gifted you to do here while you're here on earth. You know, a few years ago, I set out to, to get in shape to, to run a half marathon, and I, I, I did. Uh, and what I found is that with long-distance running, you have to be focused on, on the finish line. Yes, absolutely. But it's also important to focus on what's immediately in front of you. That is to focus on what you have to do to get to the finish line. 
You have to keep one eye on the finish line, one eye on what you're doing right at the moment and how you're feeling and what you need to do at the moment. And as anyone who has run a long distance race or just run a long distance will tell you, the finish line for a 5K, sure, it's, it's sweet, but the finish line for a 10K is sweeter finish line for a half marathon is sweeter and while I haven't run a marathon I know that the the finish line of a full marathon would be even sweeter in other words the longer and more difficult the race the greater the sense of achievement and reward there is at the end that's why Paul said in Romans 8 18 he said for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us and that's why he said in 2nd Corinthians 4 17 for momentary light affliction was he going through light affliction <laughs> I just have to laugh when I read that he was not going through light affliction uh, he says for momentary light affliction or heavy affliction, um, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Our suffering is producing an eternal weight of glory. You see the correlation between affliction, persecution, and the reward of entering into his glory someday. And so we have to guard ourselves against the temptation to be so eager to get to the finish line that we don't run the race well we don't run the, ra- the race with persistence and a steadfast mind and a faithful heart we have to guard against the temptation to be so homesick for heaven that we fail to participate in what god has called us to do now right here on earth in his name And I I love that Paul is so committed to running the race well and fulfilling the mission of God that he's called him to, that he finds both life or death to be enticing. We can become so focused on heaven that we forget the mission on earth, but we can also become so focused on the mission on earth and doing God's work that we lose sight of heaven. Keep an eye on both. Keep both in mind. The world is not our home. We're just passing through. The Bible describes us as aliens and exiles who live, work, and function upon the earth for a season, all the while seeking a homeland in heaven. That's from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 14. Paul isn't denying that he wants to finish, uh, finish the race and cross the finish line. He's not denying that at all. He does want to cross the finish line. But he's also enticed by the possibility of continuing his ministry, specifically to the Philippians. And so he writes in the next verse, Philippians 1.24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. While Paul looked forward to, to heaven as much as anybody does, as much as anyone does, he brings his personal desires, the things that he wants, into submission to the will of Christ with joyful, joyful acceptance. This church in Philippi had problems. There, there were divisions among them. There were, there were people who were trying to exalt themselves over one another. And Paul knew that he could help them to overcome and, and grow through these divisions, these problems. Maybe he was the best man for the job. You know, he's the one who started uh, the, the first church in, in Philippi. And, and he knew many of their leaders personally. I mean, who would be better for the job? And this is what's going through Paul's mind. Who would be better for the job? Nobody. Paul would be best. So what Paul's telling us here, and this is important, what Paul's telling us here is that he was more than willing to place the needs of others before his wants. 
He's willing to place the needs of others before his own personal wants. He wanted to be with Christ, yes, but he knew that the Philippians needed his help. (laughs) Do you realize how much conflict and and bickering and, and fighting between Christians would be eliminated if we just followed Paul's example here? We would eradicate. We would completely do away with splits and divisions within the church. It's as if Paul's wanting so badly to cross the finish line, right? You know, but, but he knows that before he gets to the finish line, there are some runners on the side of the road who are injured. And so he wants to tend to their needs and their wounds before moving on to the finish line. And once again, Paul's teaching us here by example. This is what it looks like to live for Christ. This is what it looks like to take on the likeness of Christ and commit to a life of dedication and sacrificial service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It means selflessly giving ourselves away. Part of running the race well means being willing to just humble ourselves, foregoing our, our personal ambitions and our, our wants, and to meet the needs within the body of Christ, the needs of others. And this is one of the things that was so beautiful and so enticing about the early church and it's honestly something that's somewhat lacking in a world that's just increasingly busy today there was a study done by stanford university which revealed that there was uh, there is psychologically a strong correlation between finding meaning in life and experiencing joy and happiness in life but according to this study quote people leading meaningful lives get a lot of joy from Giving to others, end quote. And I can send you that, uh, a link to that, um, that study if you want to read about it. But the, the, what we see here is that it's true. Everything that Paul's telling us here is true. The person who lives for Jesus will find joy in serving others. Well, they'll find joy in it. It'll be enticing to them. The person who lives for Jesus must learn to give themselves to others and find tremendous joy in that. Serve God by serving people. The question is, what makes life meaningful? As Solomon observed, true meaning is only found in fearing and obeying God. And if we're fearing and obeying God, that means we'll be serving God, which entails the selfless, sacrificial service of God's people. And when we do that, when we commit to that attitude, then we too can say to live is Christ and to die is gain because we will joyfully bring our personal will into submission to the will of God in order that whether we live or die, He alone is glorified in our lives because He's what we're living for. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the example that, that Paul gives us. But we also thank you, Lord, that uh, we know that there is grace when we fall short of the example that your son set for us. So our prayer, Lord, is that you would teach us to, to put you first in our lives, to live for you and you alone, to live for your glory, that the world would see you through us, that they would get a glimpse of who you are through our lives because we are being brought into submission to your will. Teach us, Lord, to glorify you in all that we do. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us for the times that we lose our priorities. 
We love you. Please teach us to live for you and to find meaning in that alone above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer. To Jesus. Take me deeper.